Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Good evening and welcome. My name is Fred Paul and you are watching ADH TV, the new home for common sense commentary in Australia. Well, the Productivity Commission released a review of the National School Reform Agreement today. And it reads like another bureaucratic distraction from the key objective of our enormous education system, which is to equip our kids with what they need to survive in what education boffins routinely call an increasingly complex world. And that's the first mistake they make. The world is only complex if you think that Western civilization is passe and that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is going to destroy life on Earth. Both of these ideas are being taught in our schools, by the way, but I'll get to that in a minute. Education doesn't need to be complex. All kids really need is basic proficiency in reading and maths, a decent understanding of science, and not to be indoctrinated in modern leftist pessimism. Then they'll be fine. Trouble is, that's not what's happening. According to the Program for International Student Assessment, the ability of the average 15-year-old Australian kid to read has been declining since 2000, to do maths, since 2003, and to understand science since 2012. The National School Reform Agreement, or NSRA, was signed by the States and Commonwealth four years ago. It derives its goals from the 2008 Melbourne Declaration on Education Goals for Young Australians, which I mentioned last week. That was the historic moment when education ministers around the nation decided that schools should, quote, play a vital role in promoting the intellectual, physical, social, emotional, moral, spiritual, and aesthetic development of young Australians, unquote. Like I said last week, we never voted for the state to become an emotional, moral, and spiritual mentor to our kids, but we got it anyway. It's bad enough that the education system's conventional results have been going backwards, but you'd have to say that these new objectives have, have hardly been producing exceptional results either. Say what you like about our education system, but producing emotionally, morally, and spiritually enlightened kids hasn't exactly been one of its strong points for the 14 years since the Melbourne Declaration. 
If Peter Dutton or any state liberal leader were to campaign to repeal these intrusive objectives, the groundswell of support would quickly become a stampede. The NSRA's two primary objectives are fine, equity and excellence. There's nothing wrong with that. All Aussie kids should get the chance to excel, and the more equal the opportunity, the better. One of the founding principles of liberalism is equality of opportunity, not outcome. Outcome is up to the individual. Unfortunately, the system is failing to produce equity as well. Soon after the report was, was released today, the Australian's education reporter, Nash, Natasha Beater, commented, quote, Children from poor families, those whose parents did not finish school, First Nations children and students with a disability, as well as those living in remote or regional Australia, are falling behind city kids with wealthier university-educated parents. This trend cannot be tolerated or it will exacerbate intergenerational poverty and social dysfunction." Unquote. Well, if the system is offering equity in anything, it's in the opportunity to lament the student's own nation's existence and to fear for their own future. The NSRA is related to the implementation of the national curriculum, which has been around since 2011. Although the states are not, according to our constitution, obliged to be part of it, they have all volunteered to adopt the national curriculum in one way or another. The curriculum inserts three cross-curriculum ideas into all subjects. Those three, uh, those three ideas are Indigenous history, Australia's engagement with Asia, and sustainability. As far as sustainability goes, it places, quote, emphasis on sustainability as a priority for study that connects and relates relevant aspects of content across learning areas and subjects. Students develop the knowledge, skills, values, and world views necessary to contribute to more sustainable patterns of living." Unquote. The implication, of course, is that if they don't, the world will die. The engagement with Asia part of the curriculum reads more like a geopolitical manifesto than an education document. Quote, Australia is increasingly looking to Asia strategically, politically and culturally, as well as economically. Correspondingly, Asia literacy is going to be a key requirement for our young people. As Australia seeks to strengthen its ties in the Asia region and be an effective contributor to the well-being of the region as a whole. For this, young people will need broad insight into the histories of the countries of the Asia region, including their shared history with Australia, its complex, there's that word again, and diverse cultures, and an understanding of the contemporary challenges and opportunities that exist for the region. By knowing something of Asian societies, cultures, beliefs, and environments, they will deepen their intercultural understanding enrich their own lives and increase the likelihood of successful partic participation in the Asian century for themselves and Australia as a whole." Unquote. In other words, forget Shakespeare and learn about Mao instead, because Western civilization is just so last century. 
Oh, and there's one more objective you'd expect from our education system. That would be to give the long-suffering taxpayers of Australia value for the $60 billion they cough up every year for schools alone. But frugality from governments is a forlorn hope these days. Intersectionality is something we usually associate with identity politics. Does a member of a primitive religion have more rights than women, for example? Or should an obscure gender identity be granted more sympathy and welfare payments than people with mild disabilities? These are questions that only entire faculties of human humanities professors can answer, and it's reassuring that we are spending enormous amounts of money on them doing so. But there's one aspect of intersectionality that they seem to be overlooking. If we are to divide people according to their immutable characteristics, should we also divide them according to how long they've been in Australia? Sounds ridiculous, right? But in some ways, we are doing this already, as my next guest will explain. But first, Queenslanders are dealing with aspects of a troubled past in a way that only civilised people can. The problem they are solving relates to place names. Submissions to a proposal to change the name of Blackfellas Creek near Cairns closed this week after a two-month consultation process. Last year, the council, the local council, renamed the adjacent park, which had the same name, to the Allen and May Oliver and Banner Gindaja Park. One local elder said Blackfellas Creek originally marked a border for Indigenous people who weren't welcome in town while another old resident said the name, now harmless, was too deeply embedded in local memories to justify being renamed. Meanwhile, in Brisbane, Boundary Street, which also marked a border for Indigenous people at one time, will not be renamed. Treaty Advancement, uh, Treaty Advancement Committee co-chair Mick Gouda said it was all part of the, quote, truth-telling process leading up to the signing of a treaty between the state of Queensland and the descendants of the original Indigenous residents. My next guest is former Queensland Premier Campbell Newman, who also wants local Indigenous places properly recognised. Campbell, welcome. G'day, mate. Great to be with you again, Fred. Good to have you back. Now, let's start with Blackfellows Creek and Black Gin Creek. Should Queenslanders find these names offensive? Oh, gee. Look, I think it, it depends, mate. It really does. Uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, there are probably extreme examples around there that uh, probably if the local community, and I mean genuinely is consulted, supports a change, well, why not? But generally, mate, I have a real problem with this uh, need to run around and uh, relabel and, uh, you know, sort of... Uh, you know, rewrite history. Um, I, I think that's a real problem. It's, it's, it's in the same basket as ripping down statues of people who were there 150 years ago who, who built different parts of Australia, but today are being, we're being told that, you know, they were racist or, you know, they, they, they had inappropriate ideas. So it's, it's a really difficult one. Um, generally, I don't support, the, you know, this, this, this sort of, uh, purge of, of place names and, and the confusion it's going to cause. And, you know, one thing I then have to reflect on, Fred, is where does this stop and what is the real agenda of many of these people? 
Yeah, uh, and that's... frankly, the more I see, you know, they, we, we, we've been told, you know, this truth-telling thing, and then we we move on to the voice, and and you know, then we hear about some people talking about reparations, and you know, the last two weeks actually have been very instructive. A lot has been sort of let slip by members of the left about what the real agenda is, and frankly, it's it's nothing less than completely ripping the the government and the social structure of Australia down and starting again. And you know, I say no to that. Well, well said. Yeah, I agree. I mean, these are sensitive topics and you have to, you know, sometimes you've got to walk a mile in another man's shoes, you know. I mean, if, if there are genuine reasons to be offended, then, then let's talk about them. But, I mean, you, you say that they, the sort of left is, is letting slip their true intentions here. That might apply to what Mick Gouda says about Boundary Street in Brisbane, because he says it should remain as a reminder, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but... He's saying it's a reminder of, it uh, should remain as a reminder of what it once stood for, which was a street th across which uh, mm. the Indigenous population were not allowed to um, pass. Yep. Now, that's not a positive reminder. So, I mean, it, it, can Mick Gouda have it both ways? I think that's an important point, Fred. Um, you know, and, and from what I understand of the history, you know, it, Mick Gooder is, is definitely right in that it, it was indeed a demarcation line. And, you know, I actually think he's on the right track, if you like. He's actually, it is pointing out um, and, and people know the history. Uh, and that's my point on the statues. It's like, you know, if, if someone 150 years ago had a role to play in an Australian state, uh, but they did have, say, racist views, and like people did have, people did have racist views in the past that we wouldn't find acceptable today. But we don't pull down their statues. Let me give you an example. Um, I, w I was absolutely um, uh, amused, and well, and, and a bit, bit, bit surprised though. A new uh, Labor uh, senator from WA uh, stood up and her maiden speech said that uh, she joined the Labor Party because they were the ones that got rid of the white Australia policy. Well, that particular senator needs, to rea needs a reality check. Uh, just a memo to the good senator. Uh, the Labor Party are the ones who are the strongest supporters and the people who demanded a white Australia policy. So we can look at the statements of, say, iconic Labor figures like John Curtin, who espoused racist views in terms of what we'd find acceptable today. They were clearly racist views in the context of 2022. Now, I don't believe for a moment that we should rename Curtin University or pull down statues of, of him or take take uh, take away any recognition of his achievements. He was a great wartime prime minister, as we know. But there are many other examples across the political spectrum. So it is nonsense. It's better to actually have, you know, historians tell us what, you know, the circumstances were at the time, what these figures really did do. You know, and look... For example, you know, and, and some people on the right would actually roll their eyes and be saying this, but, you know, rather than take a statue down, why not have that interpretive plaque beside it to say, well, you know, this is the other side of the story, but have it there. But, but don't pull it down. And, and, and going back to Mick's uh, point of view, it's a reminder of what did happen in the past and we shouldn't forget our history. That's an important thing. So on the place name things, there might be cases where it is really offensive to Indigenous people and let them put that forward to their communities. If their communities really are consulted and want to change the name, well, well, so be it. That's democracy. But, you know, sometimes these things are done by, by councils or state governments 
with token uh, consultation and a clear preordained agenda. Well, speaking um, but, uh, of exactly, anyway, that's my view on that, well, speaking of tokens, I mean, what aren't there more important things to be worrying about than place names anyway when it comes to reconciliation oh, and indigenous yeah. affairs? Well, look, you know, look at look at the look at the troubles in communities like Yundamu, which has been in the news yet again with uh, there's allegations about an AFL star and something that happened there in in recent days. Um, you know, we, we've we've seen what you know we've seen other uh, communities in remote parts of Australia have got terrible problems, social problems. That's where the focus should be, rather than these sort of issues, and. You know, um, that's where all our energies, our resources, and frankly, that's where those sort of communities need leadership from prominent Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians. That's where leadership is required and support, uh, not not people ignoring that, pretending it's not there and going after this sort of uh, nonsense. Okay, let's talk about the hierarchy, or should I say the intersectionality of Australian residents. Should people ha who have lived here the longest have more rights or say in our politics than others, Campbell? I know you've got some strong opinions about this. Well, I just like to put this this logic to, to people. If if I said to you that people who've been here longer should have better rights, uh, more rights, uh, different rights, um, advanced rights, if I can call it that, uh, you'd, you'd probably most Australians would go, well, that's nonsense. So, so what are we about to do here with The Voice? We are about to say that a group of people, because they've been here longer, are in a separate class and ultimately could have uh, different, arguably superior rights to Australians in, in important critical issues. So let me just test this. Um, my family have been here, say, 170 years now, a number of generations. Um, I don't claim uh, to, to have better rights than, say, somebody who came from Afghanistan uh, three or four years ago and became a citizen in recent weeks. You know, and, and that, that, of course, is the case. You know, why, why should I, you know, no one would accept that I should have superior rights to the welfare system or right to vote or, you know, claim on this country over a person who, who just arrived. So, you know, I think it's quite logical that... Uh, we're all Australians together and we shouldn't be setting Australians against one another. And that's why I'm a firm opponent of this so-called voice. Um, there are plenty of Aboriginal people now uh, who have made it into our state parliaments and federal parliament and they've done a good job and they have an opportunity to, to speak uh, for all Australians and indeed their own communities, as is uh, the, the role and responsibility of our elected officials. Well, the voice would create, would make the rest of us almost second-class citizens, wouldn't it? Well, if, if the voice has the ability to um, intervene and um, uh, have a, another view, uh, a, a sort of an overview of legislation that applies to all other Australians, by definition it is. And, you know, the people out there from, I suppose, the, the elite of this country, because it is the elite who are sort of moving, like a, as, as they usually do in this country, in a herd-like way, regardless of, in sadly, in many cases, political persuasion, they move off and they, they, they're all trying to tell us this is good for us. Well, I look at uh, stuff, for example, published uh, by Janet Albrechtson in The Australian, where she makes the case very strongly against this and where it could 
go and I believe will go. And I go back to some comments I made earlier on in this interview that in the last two weeks, with the death of Her Majesty the Queen, we have seen from the left uh, clearly what the agenda is. You know, uh, I could refer to, for example, Adam Bant's comments about uh, about things, about the Queen's death. Uh, Senator Faruqi from New South Wales has made it very clear how she feels. It doesn't stop with the Republic. It doesn't stop with the voice. It, it continues on because these people want to pull Australia apart and remake it in a way they think becomes perfection. Well, and that is that is deeply troubling. It's uncharted territory. And, and, and like, you know, how often have you heard from the activists, Aboriginal land always, always has, always, always has been and yep. always will be? Yeah. Well, well that, that, that says, that, that says, that says that anybody who's come since 1788 is illegitimate. That's what the activists are saying. And, you know, when you, when you, when you look at what the, the extremists are saying, beware because that's where it will be pushed in the future. Well, constitutional change uh, is a big responsibility for any federal government. And this federal government seems, you know, seems all at sea over it. I mean, they're saying, you know, they want the voice referendum in, its, in the first uh, in, in the first term, they're, they're not saying anything about these treaties being, being signed between Victoria and Queensland. And now it's friends in the Republican movement will be pressuring them, as you say, to get cracking on severing ties with the United Kingdom. Campbell, constitutional change or reform has suddenly become an absolute dog's breakfast, don't you think? Well, it is a dog's breakfast. And I just say to people, if we're just talking about the Republic, um, no, I've I've um, I've got very mixed feelings about uh, this myself. I've been a, a, a sort of a constitutional monarchy supporter for for many many years. Uh, I was asked about it recently on another media outlet, and I have significant misgivings about about uh, King Charles III, and that's because of his uh, left wing advocacy in the past of of various causes dear to his heart. Now, I was very impressed with what he said about um, in an interview where he, he he made a commitment to park all that um, and 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 to perform the role properly. Um, so I guess i'm 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 on the edge now. But the big problem for me with a, with with the republic is, you know the big problem is when I see people like uh, our friend with the red bandana, Mr. Fitzsimmons down in Sydney, when I see him you know, inappropriately jump on the bandwagon within hours of the Queen's death, when he starts pushing immediately for, you know, the sort of, you know, the, the um, uh, King Charles to be removed from, you know, or not ever go on to the coinage and the, the banknotes, you, you immediately begin to see what these people are about. They don't, they don't want to do anything other than push us in a headlong direction. Uh, it's about bullying and coercion. And uh, it's not about a proper debate about these things. I mean, what is their model uh, to ensure that a head of state in Australia isn't a political figure? And that is absolutely uh, critically important. And, and, and I'll make one other observation about this. One of the challenges is so many Australians, unfortunately, don't understand the, the subtle nuances of the way the system does work, whether the way it works in the UK, the way it works here. And it is very nuanced. And these, what, what we're seeing is a fundamental problem. We don't teach people history that understand that the system that we've inherited from the UK and that it continues in the UK is, is from hundreds of years of 
you know, bitter trial and error and indeed a great deal of bloodshed. The thing is, it works. Arguably, it works better in the UK than it does in the United States. So we shouldn't just throw this stuff out just because a bloke who's an activist, wears a red bandana, that tells us that's got to happen. Well, we're going to have to remain vigilant. I mean, the, the Republicans in Australia are making mildly reassuring noise, um, sounds or messages that they're, that they're not going to become too emphatic, uh, at least for now. But already this afternoon, there was a, you could, a reporting... You could, have, you, could have, you could have fooled me, Fred. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just think that, they're, they're, again, it's like, you know, the, you know, the, the, the lady's not buried yet. No, that's right. You know, that's like, right. Come on. And, yeah, and like, the media's like they, already on to it. One thing they don't have, one, if, if, look, I guess it's like, this is a great irony. If, if I don't know if they, I don't know if they'd watch, these people to watch uh, Australian Digital Holdings, and, and they should, because they might learn more about how to get this across the line if they believe it. But the more they push, the more someone like me who might be prepared to listen to them is recoiling in horror because, you know, you know if, if these people are the ones pushing it, then you've got to be very worried about what the outcome will be. That's right. You, <laughs> I wouldn't trust them with a, you know, <laughs> with a country women's Campbell association committee, mate. Anyway, <laughs> Campbell, that's all the, all the time we've got time for. Thanks, Fred. Thanks so Great much for your time, you. Campbell. That's former Premier, Queensland Premier, Campbell Newman. Well, does the woman voted sexiest vegetarian celebrity of 2010 know what she's talking about when referring to an international best-selling philosopher and author? Let's find out. Olivia Wilde is the director of the new and controversial movie, Don't Worry Darling, set in an idyllic 1950s desert community. Details are scant, but don't be surprised if it's a vehicle for Wilde's leftist beliefs. Wilde is one of the many Hollywood stars who have achieved enormous success in Hollywood while ticking all the right woke boxes, marching for women's rights, campaigning for Barack Obama, and hiring all black cast and crews in her films. I might have made that last one up, but you get the picture. She also advocates for what she calls reproductive rights while also about to give birth. Oh, check this out. This election cycle, I'm thinking a lot about reproductive rights everyone's right to plan when they want to have a family. And it's on my mind because I'm literally about to have a baby, like in a minute. Don't Worry Darling, the movie has a character called Frank, which Wilde says is based on best-selling Canadian author Jordan Peterson. Quote, we based that character on this insane man Jordan Peterson, who is this pseudo-intellectual hero to the incel community. Incel is involuntary celebrate, celibate, which is apparently, uh, which, uh, is apparently young men who are intimidated by feminists. Wilde says they, quote, believe they are entitled to sex from women, unquote. Well, that's one way of putting it. Peterson has made a brilliant career standing up for free speech, especially for young men who have been brought up to associate masculinity with toxicity and as a result are feeling quite alienated. Like all woke observations, Wilde's is imbued with a bitter resentment, resentment for people who don't fit into her narrow worldview. Peterson's career as an author looks unlikely to be diminished by this Hollywood production.
Now, one of the stranger things to happen as a result of the death of Queen Elizabeth is how many women ignored or even celebrated it. There, the AFL Women's League made an ostentatious decision not to have a minute's silence before two of its games on the weekend because it was Indigenous Round. The connection between Indigenous Round and Elizabeth is one that only the woke can understand. And now it has emerged that a woman called Caitlin Moran, who plays for the Newcastle Knights Rugby League team, has been disciplined for calling Elizabeth a deeply offensive name on the day of her death and saying it was a, quote, good effing day, unquote. Let's get Stephen Senatiempo in to discuss how our relationship to the monarchy is changing. Stephen, welcome. Good to be with you again, Fred. Uh, now, Stephen, you might be old enough to remember this famous moment from 1980. Paul Hogan was introduced to the Queen wearing his trademark flanny with cut-off sleeves, footy shorts and long footy socks. It was the outfit he wore as a rigger on Sydney Harbour Bridge and later wore as a star of Australian television. Hogan is on record saying the only person not embarrassed by this stunt was the Queen herself. Those were the days when <laughs> Aussies knew how to flaunt their attitude to authority. It was cheeky, but not totally disrespectful. Now we've got overpaid female footy stars saying rude things on the day she died. Stephen, what's changed? I, I don't, look, I think we've lost the ability to be irreverent without being rude. And and that, that's an iconic photo of Hoag's. And it's if you look at even his demeanour and he's, you know, he's obviously standing very straight and showing Her Majesty the respect that she deserved. And and the one thing we know, and particularly the thing that has emerged over the last couple of days, is that Queen Elizabeth II had a wicked sense of humour. So she would have absolutely loved that. But I don't know what it is that we've got to be so crass and so crude about everything we disagree with these days. Now, you, you can be a mon you can be a Republican and that's fine. Everybody's entitled to their opinions, but is it really necessary to speak ill of the dead in the way that Caitlin Moran did? Now, whether or not she'd be, she'd be disciplined for it, I guess that's a different story because as I say, everybody's entitled to their opinion, but it just, it, it, it just shows a, I don't know, a, a, a crass manner, a, a dumbing down of, of our society, a, a, a coarseness that's crept into our, into our, discourse it's just I, 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 I look I was I don't get offended by anything because I, I I think being offended is a choice but it was a deeply offensive thing to say and I don't think she garnered herself any fans uh, well I mean maybe look maybe there might be people out there that are in the greens or something like that that <laughs> think she's a hero now but is that something really to be proud of <laughs> well it's it, it's not a demographic we're, we're chasing here at 88 um, but no. I think the problem is that Australians take themselves too seriously these days. I mean, look at our most famous comedian today. It's Hannah Gadsby, who admits she's not even funny. <laughs> so do you think Australians yeah. should just learn to lighten up a bit? Yeah, you know, it's funny, uh, particularly in the context of us mourning the death of Her Majesty, as we used to call the, the Poms whingers. Well, we've become bigger whingers than the Poms ever were. And you're right, we do take ourselves too seriously. We've lost that that lack of reverence um, that we used to be able to, you know, we used to be able to laugh at ourselves and, and have a bit of a joke with anybody on, on any level. But I, I think it kind of, it ties in with th this whole Republican movement that seems to have this view that 
Australia is not an adult nation. We can't be proud of ourselves because we have a foreign head of state um, and, uh, you know, nobody else takes us seriously. Well, we certainly, you know, in some respects, take ourselves a little bit too seriously. But when it comes to the important stuff, we don't seem to be very proud of ourselves at all. And I think that's a real shame. Well, you're the host of the breakfast show on 2CC in Canberra, and you have a direct line to the listeners about this. What are they saying about the death of the Queen? Oh, look, it's it's touched most Canberrans. It has touched on a on a very deep level because um, she visited Canberra more to, more times than she visited any other city in Australia. She came here fourteen times, and even those that you would expect to be uh, anti-monarchist and, and absolute um, uh, Republicans in every sense of the word have really taken this to heart. I, I mean, there's one particular Labor member of the Assembly down here who I. I was I almost fell off my chair when she tweeted something rather complimentary about Her Majesty on her passing, and it's um it's been something that the whole town has embraced. Um, you know, all the flags are flying at half mast. Of course, Parliament House is being lit up with images of the Queen. Uh, the Carillion's been uh, lit up in purple to acknowledge uh, the passing of Her Majesty. It's been a a big deal down here, and and as the nation's capital, you would expect it to be as well, with uh, gun salutes and all sorts of uh, r- various tributes, uh, not only to the Queen but also to the new King as well. Well, that, that leads very well onto my next question. What's the story about the ACT government not proclaiming Charles as king? What's, what's that all about? Yeah, it, it's a bit of a beat up. The, the reality is that the ACT Legislative Assembly doesn't need to proclaim Charles as king because it, it's a glorified council in essence. And because we don't have our own governor here in the ACT, the governor general is effectively our vice regal representative. He's already done it for us. So there was no actual requirement uh, for the ACT legislature to do it. And it was just a a click grab headline in the local newspaper, which has become a propaganda arm for the local government anyway. Um, You know, people think, oh, goodness me, we're not we're not proclaiming the king when the reality is that, you know, they they did everything else. But because there's actually no requirement for them to do it or really no opportunity for them to do it because of the structure of the ACT, so to speak. So there's really nothing to it. Yeah, I suspected just because it's a territory, it would prob- there, were, there was probably some protocol behind it. I went to the proclamation on Macquarie Street in Sydney and uh, I, was, I was amused that um, before the governor proclaimed Charles as King of uh, New South Wales, we were welcomed to country. <laughs> I mean, how can you <laughs> proclaim Charles as king and be welcomed to country at the same time? Do, do you think they're kind of contradictory messages, Stephen? Yeah, they, they, it, it, I found it a little bit, uh, it, well, the similar thing when um, most of the ceremonies were taking place here in the ACT, they were welcomed to countries and smoking ceremonies and the like. And look, I got no problem with acknowledging our Indigenous history, but yeah, the two things do seem to fly in the face of each other a little bit, that's for sure. Uh, let's talk about federal politics. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is flagging the end of the $550 a week payment to people who isolate after a positive COVID test. Now, this was uh, news to me, not because he's he's flagging the end of it, but that people still test for COVID, Stephen. Is that yeah. really happening? <laughs> yeah, look, apparently it does. And I, I, look, I've got to take, I, I've got to say, I agree with Albo in the sense that what he did say was, if the government is going to require you to isolate for five or seven days, then we have a responsibility to make sure you can feed yourself in that time. But I get the sense that he's also going to encourage National Cabinet to scrap this isolation thing altogether. But I think what he should have really done was said, I'm going to scrap National Cabinet altogether because it's been an abject failure since the very beginning and it's time to move on and let the federal government start governing. 
which is something he hasn't actually started doing yet, mind you. I think he's going to hang on to it because uh, he didn't create it, so they can't blame him for it. But uh, National Cabinet's going to come <laughs> in handy, isn't it? Well, it probably will, particularly given the makeup of it. I mean, uh, apart from Dominic Perrottet um, and whatever that bloke's name is in Tasmania, they're all uh, of Albo's political stripe, so he can basically get whatever he wants there. But um, I also think there's a sense from the Labor premiers and, and particularly from our chief minister that they're going to have an opportunity to roll over the federal government at every opportunity now because there's a Labor federal government. But I look, I... I didn't vote for Albo, and uh, I would have preferred that somebody else won, but I don't think he's going to be that silly either. Well, <laughs> you didn't vote for him. Two-thirds of Australia didn't vote for him, Stephen, but no, we're stuck with him that's, now. That's right. <laughs> I mean, it might be a blessing that he spends so much time overseas. We shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't be too <laughs> critical. He is our Prime Minister, and he's welcome on my show any time. But let's talk about the Greens for a change. Now, Green Senator Lydia Thorpe put on an Oscar-winning performance in the Senate last week, calling Alex Antich a racist. And on top of that, she declared that she felt unsafe in the Senate, which, uh, as we all know, is one of the most heavily guarded and protected places in the entire yeah. country. Stephen, are Green politicians just making themselves less and less relevant, you think? Uh, well, is that possible? I mean, they're not relevant at all. How can they be any less relevant? Um, look, the reality is that there's going to be that lunatic fringe of 10 or 12% of voters that vote for the Greens. Um, yeah, here in the ACT, it might be a little bit higher, but look, uh, the Greens are the joke that they make themselves out to be. I mean, you know, look at Adam Bant and Maureen Faruqi were the first ones to jump onto Twitter and, and make disparaging comments about the monarchy. Uh, Lydia Thorpe decided to hold her water for a couple of days and then come out with this long diatribe of eight or nine tweets in a row uh, suggesting that, you know, we, we, she wasn't going to kneel to the colonisers and all this kind of rubbish, despite the fact that she takes a pay, a pay check from the colonisers. Uh, look, you know, it, it, they are a joke. Everybody understands that, except for that lunatic fringe that votes for them. And I, the less we, less oxygen we give them, the better. And before you go, Stephen, what's this story about rangers killing 11 Brumbies at Mount Kosciuszko and then leaving them to rot? What, what's that about? Well, it's, it's a developing story. And I, I've spoken to Peter Cochran, who is the former member for Monero in the New South Wales Parliament. And he's very much a um, very protective of the Brumbies. And he, he, he actually leads tours for the National Park. And from what he tells me, there's an iconic herd of 11 Brumbies that have now been slaughtered and just left in the park. Um, now, apparently the manner in which these horses have been killed is outside the protocols of the of the Brumby culls that go on in the place. Now, there's obviously um, two sides of this story, and one side thinks that there's too many Brumbies and they're damaging the National Park. Others think that there's not many of them and they're an iconic part of Australian history, and I don't want to get into that debate, but the reality is that from what I can understand, and I spoke to Peter Cochran yesterday and again today, and he actually took he went for a ride on a horse out there, and he says that it's absolute carnage, and the scene is something reminiscent of a war movie. It's disgraceful the way they've done it. And National Parks and Wildlife and the Environment Minister in New South Wales won't own up to whether or not they've actually done this or employed contractors to do it. So um, there's been no investigation into it. It's just 11 horses have been slaughtered in the park with no further information as to why, and they're still lying out there for people who are wandering through the park to see. That's That sounds horrible. I mean, this is a... Yeah. This is a tourist attraction. I mean, on one hand, you're, you're sort of discouraging tourists, and on the other, we don't know what our government, our taxpayer 
funded ranges are up to. I mean, we're going to have to stay on top of this story, I think. What? Yeah, particularly in the sense that, you know, they're, they're, they'll argue that the Brumbies are actually damaging the park, which they want to preserve for tourists. But then when tourists go wandering through the park, the scene they find is 11 dead horses. It's just extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. We'll have to stay on top of that story. We'll uh, we'll get we'll get back onto that next week when we uh, when we see you next week. Stephen Senatiempo, thanks so much for your time. Good to talk to you, Fred. See you next week. That's Stephen Senatiempo, the host of the Breakfast Show on Canberra's Two Double C. And before I go, the Republican movement in Australia has graciously called something of a truce in its campaigning. While the, world, while the world grieves for the passing of Queen Elizabeth. But there is one aspect of our supposed transition to a republic that they know they can't pause on for too long. It's our currency. The Mint will start producing coins featuring Charles III from next year. The more coins bearing the new monarch's head, the more a part of our everyday lives he will become, even if most of us do tap and go these days. You can imagine Republicans wanting to slow or even stop this transition as soon as possible, which is what they're doing. While the coins bear the monarch on one side, only one banknote does so, the $5 note. And Assistant Minister for the Treasury, Andrew Lee, says we shouldn't assume Charles will take her place. He said, quote, the decision to include the Queen's face on the $5 note was about her personally, about her personally rather than about the status of the monarch. So that transition isn't automatic, unquote. Well, this is partly true. The faces on our banknotes are arbitrarily chosen. The Queen was added to the $5 note 30 years ago in 1992. But unlike the other people to feature on our currency, the Queen did represent an institution. Everyone else brilliant enough to be so honoured were selected for their achievements, not what they represented. Polling company Roy Morgan released results from a survey yesterday which asked, in your opinion, should Australia remain a monarchy or become a republic with an elected president? The survey was conducted after the Queen died and Charles became king. 60% said they would prefer to stick with the monarchy which is an increase of five percentage points from a decade ago. Andrew Lee says of the future of the $5 note, quote, we will have a sensible conversation within government and make an appropriate announcement in due course, unquote. Given the results of the Roy Morgan survey, you'd hope that sensible conversation will take into account the growing affection Australians have with the monarchy. We look forward to hearing his appropriate announcement that either Elizabeth will remain or Charles will take her place in due course. Well, that's all from me. Thanks for watching. Don't forget to tune back in at 8pm tomorrow night for the great Alan Jones giving a voice to the voiceless here on ADH TV. And I'll see you straight after him at nine o'clock. Good night.